Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash Haven Podcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Hi, this is Jerry Mathers from Leave it to Beaver, and this is the Then Is Now Podcast. What kind of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend! I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Up your nose when you get home. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another wonderful episode of Then Is Now podcast. I am your host, Rior. For those of us who grew up pretty much from the 1950s to the 1990s, newspapers carried ads for movies and listings for the theaters and drive-ins that were playing those movies. I used to love pouring through the movie section of the Boston Globe to see what was playing because my parents and I went to the movies once or twice a week. And in those days, movie posters, which is now basically a lost art, were boiled down to smaller versions to fit as ads in the paper. Aside from collecting TV guides and scanning them in for my Facebook TV guide scan page, I also pour through old newspapers and collect scans of those old 
great newspaper ads that I was just talking about. Today's guest is a great guy who shares the same passion as me, except he's taken his love of those old ads one step further and publishes a fanzine called Drive-In Asylum, which you can get through Etsy. Each issue is chock full of those incredible newspaper ads, and I love when I get an issue and sit down with it to carefully go through it page by page reading all the ads and articles. If you remember those ads, you might want to consider checking his magazine out, and those ads are definitely a lost art that you need to share with the younger generation. So get ready for a fun interview. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Okay, folks, I've got a great guest for you today. He's the editor and publisher of the independent fanzine Drive-In Asylum, which is a quarterly print-only fanzine devoted to classic eras of horror, cult, and exploitation films. Now, exploitation is no stranger to the show, which we've talked about quite a bit. It showcases the art of newsprint ads as well as interviews with the people who made the films. His team of film fanatics also offer commentary and reviews in each issue. He's also the curator of Groovy Doom, a Facebook page dedicated to vintage newsprint ads for horror, cult, and exploitation films, as well as writing his Groovy Doom blog. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the show Bill Van Ren. Hey there, how you doing? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. I'm so glad to have you on the show today, man. Thanks for asking me to come on. I was very excited that you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. And uh, I got to tell the folks at home, the way I, I, I found you was we had gone, we had both been at the April Ghouls Drive-In Monsterama, which I did a, a show about uh -huh. and um, I did a blog about as well. And there was a huge ad between the movies for your fanzine, Drive-In Asylum. And I, I, as soon as I saw the ad, I like literally put it into my phone and saved it for when I got home so I could look it up and start buying them because it's an amazing magazine. So, Bill, can you just tell us how you got onto the path to publishing this great magazine? Well, thank you, first of all, for actually um, buying the magazine after you saw the ad, which was the whole reason I made it. Um, <laughs> I got into it by, uh, I, somebody showed me a fanzine called Snack Bar Confidential, and a, an artist named Lance Laurie publishes that fanzine. I'm not sure if he's still doing it because he doesn't market it quite the same way. Lance makes his and likes to leave it in laundromats and phone booths and places in public. Well, if there even are phone booths anymore. <laughs> um, he leaves them in places in public for people to find. But I loved the design that he came up with because it was just all this vintage advertising collected into maybe like a 24-page fanzine. And seeing those ads back on paper really gave me a thrill. And I had already been collecting ads for my Facebook page, Groovy Doom, which people were really starting to pick up on. Like I was getting more and more followers because a lot of people love looking at them. 
And I thought, that's what I have to do. I have to do a fanzine like this. So I created, you know, the first two or three issues of Drive and Asylum were almost all advertising. It was just collages of vintage newsprint ads and uh, for horror, cult and exploitation films. Nice. You know, I'm not interested in, you know, comedies or family films. Right, right. <laughs> for, at least for the ads. <laughs> um, so that's how I started doing it. And then I started, you know, of course, I can't keep my mouth closed for very long. So I started writing things in the in the fanzine and other people started to want to get involved, which really surprised me. And I thought, wow, maybe this is something I, I should explore. So here we are today. The, the magazine is now about 60 pages per issue. Um, there's a lot more ads and a lot more commentary in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I just love I love when I get it. And I, I just can pour through it and I read every ad and it, it totally brings me back to those days, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, it's funny because I do research as well. A lot of times I do it for if we're talking about a movie on the show, I'll start I'll go through old newspaper ads that I can find, you know, through um, archives yeah. online. And did you do you have ads that you kept from when you were a kid or are you, is this more recent research? Uh, this is all stuff that I found online, uh, the, the thing in newspaper archives. Okay, yeah, I use that uh, one too. But I did have, a, I did have a scrapbook of ads back in the day. I didn't know what it meant uh, to put things in cheap photo albums where it's full of acid and it just burns all of your images right. to death. <laughs> uh, so everything turned brown and started to get real super brittle and. More importantly, like, you know, sadly, I lost my nostalgia for it and I, I just threw it away. Oh, and now sorry. I regret that. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I still have photo albums full of stuff, too. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, well, I think what happened was I had to downsize because I was moving and, uh, you know, stuff happens. But fortunately, I found another way to get this urge out. Once I once I started to miss looking at those ads, I started to, you know collect all these images and now I have thousands and thousands of these images and you know putting them into the zine gives me something to do with them that's awesome that's amazing and um so growing up were you into you know um horror movies that were on tv or even horror hosts I was into everything that had to do with horror I was a full-fledged monster kid my dad used to show me horror movies on tv when I was real young he showed me my first horror movie which was gargoyles Oh, nice. The made-for-TV movie, and I was terrified, but I loved it. <laughs> and my mother was furious when she found out, because I think I was, like, two oh, when that go. movie came on Yeah, because that was 72. I was as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it was either that or when they reran it the following year when I was three. But I was very young, and I loved it. I was hooked for life, and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. I just started, as I grew up, that's the stuff I went straight for. In the TV guide every week, I was like, get the TV guide the first day it's available. It was usually a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would just go through it and I would plan my viewing for the week, just looking for the, the little tag after that said thriller. Yep. So that, that was how I got started. And, you know, I, I and then I discovered Famous Monsters magazine, yep. which, you know, really just exploded my fandom, just like everybody else who was young at that time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, here we are. I'm obsessed. <laughs> and that's so amazing because we're definitely kindred spirits because I had the exact same experience. And what's really, I, I got to tell you, the irony 
of your fanzine is amazing because when I saw the ad, and the name of it, of course, as we said, is Driving Asylum. Now, when I was two in 1972 also, I have a vivid memory, and I've told this story on the show before, but I have a vivid memory of going to the drive-in with my parents and seeing the movie Asylum with Peter Cushing and Herbert Lom. It was the uh, Amicus anthology film. And Mm -hmm. what's funny about that is a side note. um, My mother and I could never remember the name of the movie, so we always called it Chopping Heads for years afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Which a buddy of mine said, oh, I'd love to see a movie starring Peter Cushing called Chopping Heads. But I like that title better. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so I just thought it was great. And it was just, and at, you know, the drive-in, of course, it was always a passion of mine anyways. And I still talk about it to this day. I still go. I've been actually all through last year, 2020, when no theaters were open, the drive-ins were. And my family and I, we went to the drive-in like almost every week. And so to see a magazine called Drive-In Asylum, I know when I saw that ad, I, I wrote it down on my phone so, uh, on a note so I would remember it. And, I, you know, I've been hooked ever since. It's just it's just a weird kind of synchronicity there. Speaking of Asylum, do you remember in 1979 when it came out again in theaters with a different name? I, I know that it did, but I didn't actually get to go see it. What was the name? It was called House of Crazies. Oh, right. And did you get to and see there was, it? No, nobody took me to the movies to see stuff like that. <laughs> Hardly ever. I had to. I had to really beg to get adults to take me to the movies to see horror films. Wow. Uh, but but it was called House of Crazies, and there was a pretty big ad campaign because remember in the seventies they used to advertise those movies on television like at four o'clock in the afternoon when kids were watching TV. Right. And they were marketing to us, even though the, sometimes the movies were rated R. And we needed a parent to get in to see them, uh, but they still wanted to sell us that stuff. Thank God. Yeah. Bless those people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was I was um, fortunate to have parents that loved horror movies anyway. So for, we went to most, like, they took me to most of the horror movies. They didn't take me to Alien, and there were a few others that I would have liked to have seen. But um, Oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. yeah. You're so lucky. Well, like, My dad was a... My dad liked horror films too, but but he was just like too lazy to take me to the movies. <laughs> he, he liked to watch stuff on TV. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, because I remember kids on the playground going, "Oh, I can't go see that movie. It's rated R." You know, rated R. I'm sorry, I'm from New England. Mm-hmm. I don't pronounce my R's. Um, and <laughs> and it's I was in like, the yard, not too far from the car. car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, "Oh, I just saw that last night with my folks," and they're like, "What?" How did you see that? I'm like, well, they took me to it. <laughs> yeah, that's a big idea to get used to for some of us because our parents wouldn't do it. The funny thing, too, now that now that we talk about it, back in those days, um, my mother would cover my eyes through the sex scenes. But violence was okay, but sex was bad. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know. Theoretically, the violence was fake, but that sex could have been real. Right, right. <laughs> so aside from the Snack Bar Confidential that you mentioned, um, were there other magazines? I mean, you, we did talk about, um, f- well, you mentioned Famous Monsters, I should say. Um, were you familiar at all with Michael Weldon's Psychotronic magazine? That came along a little later for me. Like, I wasn't aware of that until maybe the very late 80s, the early 90s. Yeah. So um, I didn't really have a whole lot to do with that magazine now okay i was just curious because it's um 
I don't want to say it's similar. It's just got the same vibe, uh, except he just talks about you know older movies, you know cult movies, uh, grindhouse exploitation stuff. But mm-hmm. um, he doesn't post many ads in them, if I can recall. Um, but yeah, that was always one that I I I sort of gravitated to after Famous Monsters, and you know kind of filled that gap until I found your awesome fanzine. Which I again I can't tell the folks at home enough. You've got to go out and get this fanzine. It's incredible. And how difficult is it to? Because you do print only, right? Yeah, it is strictly print only. Uh, I don't plan to ever make it available online because that sort of takes away the experience of it. I do plenty of things online that you can find. If you don't, for some reason, you don't want to buy the fanzine. Um, there's a Facebook page, which is also beautiful to look at because if you just go to all of every Facebook page has a section where you can just go and look at the photos that have been posted. If you bring those up on a device like an iPad or even your phone and just start scrolling through those gorgeous black and white print images, I just I, I could do that all day. I think they're so beautiful to look at. I agree. I agree. You know, and that's the thing, too, is that the art of poster movie posters is starting to be forgotten. You know, yeah. because now we have all these streaming services and they have to put all these little, you know, rectangles of the movie so we can see a bunch of them at once. And 90 percent of them now are like the actors faces. There's no actual art to the to the posters. Yeah. The, the whole way that we sell movies has changed because the way that we consume movies has changed. So, you know, I understand why it has worked out that way, but it's kind of. It makes me feel very nostalgic to see the newsprint ads because I enjoyed that way of film marketing much more than today's. You know, of course, we were a lot younger. And like we already said, you know, it was sometimes difficult to get adults to take us to see these films. So sometimes the newspaper ad campaign and the TV spots, that was the experience of the film for us. Right. Because we couldn't just go on our own because we were kids. But the newspaper was something that you could get. I mean, almost everybody's family got a newspaper or it was very easy to get a hold of one. You just looked through the news or the the movie section of the newspaper and all of these gorgeous images were there, like these lurid ads with monsters and, you know, dirty stuff like sexy movies. Right. Porn (laughs) was advertised in there. I mean, it was a thrill that was right there within your everyday reach. And the best part was, is most people probably didn't even realize that's what you were doing. It was like looking at these, these <laughs> sort of scandalous images in the newspaper. The adults, anyway, weren't paying attention. Right. So there is sort of like that, that aspect of it with the, with the fanzine as well. Like I've collected all of those images together and put them th- together in the magazine. And you can look through them on paper the way it was meant to be seen. Exactly, exactly. You know, people, and I think that's part of the reason why vinyl records are starting to come back is people like the tactile sensation of holding the album in your hands. And then beyond that, I agree, reading the liner notes and not in a CD format where you need a microscope to read them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't count. Right, exactly. So, you know, like I said, when I get your magazine, I just pour through it from page to page, read the articles, and then. You know, I, I, I love looking at the old ads. I mean, that's a huge passion of mine as well. And you're right, because back in the day, that was what I did, too, is I took would get the newspaper, either if my parents got it or I'd have to go to the you know local convenience store and get one. And that was my first thing, is to find the page that had the movie ads. And they even had TV listings in there. They have comics. 
which I don't think newspapers do any of those things, right? Or maybe they still have comics, right? I haven't picked up a newspaper in so long, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> and, you know, I'm ashamed to say so, but I'm one of those people that, that doesn't look at the newspaper anymore. Yeah, yeah, same here. So how difficult is it to put this uh, a print fanzine together? Can you maybe walk us through the process of what you have to do without giving away any of your trade secrets? <laughs> wow. Um Okay, well, it's actually a lot easier to do than I originally anticipated because when, like I said, I saw Lance's fanzine, uh, Snack Bar Confidential, and I was like, oh, how does he put this together? But for years, I had this cheap Photoshop knockoff program called Photo Studio. Uh, it came with a scanner that I bought many, many years ago. And I used to play around with this program. I'm like, this is really kind of in-depth. I mean, there, this has a lot of features to it. So, and I, there was no instruction manual on how to use it. So I just had to teach myself how to use this program. And it just grew out of that. I started, I'm like, I could make an eight and a half by 11 image and that would be two pages of a fanzine. So that was how I, that was the base that I started with. I was like, I'm just gonna put these images together and see what it looks like when you fold it into a, a fanzine format. And so I learned how to do the visual aspect of it that way. The difficult part was printing it and putting it together yeah. in a way that, um, you know, was chronological. Uh, that took a lot of trial and error. And uh, I, I got around that by creating, uh, for every issue that I make, I create a dummy, like just like a blank issue and uh, i write on the uh, on the on each page like after i fold it i go through and number all the pages and then i plan out the layout of the issue that way um then once once you open the pages again and unfold them um, you can see all the numbers and you're like okay here's the part of the page i have to fit together with this part of the page and then when the magazine is folded together it'll all be in chronological order Right. That makes sense. Um, so it's, you know, it, I, I can't imagine how people do it any other way. I'm sure there's probably a program out there that would do it for you. And I just don't know. But I like doing it this way now because that's the way that I've learned and I can do it relatively quickly. That's great. That's good. And do you have to like hand staple them all yourself? No, I I have a printer. Oh, OK. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I have a print shop that does that for me. And that's another difficult aspect of making this happen is finding a print shop that understands what you want. Right. Because, you know, I admit it's kind of a strange thing probably for them to see somebody come in and ask something like this, although I'm sure they make booklets all the time, but I'm kind of specific about what I want and how I want it to look. I went with, you know, here's the other thing too. I love magazines. I love looking at, you know, all types of magazines and magazines can be beautiful. They can be printed on high gloss, full color paper. I want mine to look cheap. <laughs> and I've told everybody this, like, first of all, I want it to be cheap. I only charge $5 uh, per issue for it. And six, if I have to do a color cover, right. Or if there's a whole lot of content in it, you know, sometimes I'll bump the price up to six, but I couldn't imagine asking much more money than that. And that's the way I want it to look. Every issue that I that I make has the, the cover is printed on a different fluorescent color paper. It's it, it's almost always a black and white issue. I've only done a color cover uh, twice so far. There's been two specials that had full color covers just to see how it would look. And it's you know I like it, but that black and white 
really speaks to me. So it's cheap to do that at the printer and to talk to them though. And sometimes they want to put it on glossy paper. I'm like, oh, like here, here, this, this is, I'm like, no, I want it to have a matte finish and I want it to feel good in your hands while you're, while you're reading it. Nice. So I've been lucky to find a print shop that understands that now and they work with me, you know, they turn these issues around really quickly. They're great. I, I don't know if, if we can say their name on your podcast. It's they're in Pittsburgh. They're, they're called copies at Carson. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Say the name again. They're called Copies on Carson. Excellent. Excellent. We'll put their, uh, I'll find their link and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. We should be supporting every aspect of your magazine because I, I think it's just a wonderful thing. And um, good, for, good for them for understanding your needs. You know, it's it, like you said, it is hard to find someone. With, back in like 91, when I was at an art school, we printed our own comic book and it was very hard to get someone that wanted that could do it the way we wanted to. And it was a similar way. You know, we wanted it on newsprint. We ended up not getting it that way, but. <laughs> what did you end up with? We ended up with a, a glossy white book. Uh, it was mm -hmm. totally, the images were black and white from cover to cover, but um, it came out great anyways. But it was just, it was funny. It was a bunch of us. We all did a short story in the book and it was more because we were like, you know, 21 year olds. We didn't know what we were doing. So we just went with what we could get. It looks like, um, I think a lot of that inspiration to make the magazine look that way comes from those Warren magazines, like yes. Famous Monsters and Damparella and, you know, all those great, really thin paper <laughs> magazines <laughs> that turned brown really quickly. Right, creepy and um, eerie, all those. Yeah, that was the good stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I still pick up, I used to have a ton of um, uh, Famous Monsters, and I've kind of lost them over the years for whatever reason. And so every so often I'll be on, like, Facebook or eBay or something, and I'll grab an issue here and there just because I, again, getting back to the tactile sensation. And like you said with your book, it's you want it to feel a certain way. There's a certain uh, feel to it that not only, like, if you buy, if we were to buy your book now, it, those of us who did read the older books would get that nostalgic feeling which we do. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully, yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, and we can pass that on to the next generation to say, this is how it should be. You know, it, it doesn't have to be glossy. It doesn't have to be high def. It's giving you amazing stuff to begin with, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's not always better. You know, the high gloss, uh, high res, that isn't necessarily a better way. I, in my opinion, anyway. Right. You know, and just sort of like in movies, um, just as an analogy, I've, I've mentioned this a few times on the show. I think it was Roger Ebert who said that stop motion effects look fake but feel real, whereas computer-generated images look real but feel fake. God bless him. You know, Roger Ebert was a, a fantastic guy, and I totally agree with him. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel taught me how to appreciate movies. Yeah. Watching their show sneak previews, yep, um, even that. though, yeah, that was that was life changing for me as a film fan because even though I didn't agree with a lot of it, they would trash movies that I loved, and I'd be like, oh, why don't they like that? And blah blah. <laughs> but I I just loved watching them talk about the movies that they did like because it was it, to me it was very interesting, and you know, plus even though they were trashing you know slasher movies and horror movies. They gave them airtime, right? And they did get that out there, you know. That, that, and it was it was there on TV for anybody to see. And I would tune in just to watch the brief clips. 
that they would show from all the the scary movies. Oh yeah, especially on the Friday the Thirteenth films, they would totally trash them, and and it was like just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> they hated those movies yeah. so much. That that uh, to see all that pearl clutching. It was great too because I think they read a little bit too much into it personally. I think like they were seeing a lot that really was not there. They weren't always wrong. Right. I'm not saying that, but you know, I think they were a little too histrionic sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, heck, when you get down to it, if you look at a movie like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you you walk away from that movie thinking that you saw far more than you did. It's really not that gory. Yeah, I think Roger gave that a good review when he reviewed it in the newspaper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. He liked that movie. Yeah, maybe because he recognized that fact, that it was a lot of it was implied. Well, I think I remember him saying he didn't like it, but he couldn't say that it was a bad movie oh. because it was very well made. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because it made him feel bad, you know, which was, it was supposed to. Right, right. Can you tell us about some of the people who write articles for your fanzine? Yeah, um, I've been so lucky, you know, a, a lot of people, most of the people who contribute have approached me. And I'm I'm very happy about that, that they saw that one of the first people that reached out to me was Chris Poggiali, who he is a well-known film historian. Um, he's been on a lot of bonus features for Blu-rays and DVDs talking about um, Times Square and the grindhouse culture. And he had his own online entity called Temple of Schlock. Hmm. Um, if you've ever looked at Temple of Schlock, that's Chris Poggioli. Um, He reached out to me, a guy named Dustin Fallon, who has a website called Horror and Sons, reached out to me. And um, that's a great website, by the way. Dustin has been nominated several times for a Rondo for his website. He's the Susan Lucci of the Rondos. <laughs> He's been nominated so many times, but still hasn't won. So one of these years, they're going to give it to him. Right. <laughs> um, also, um, some other kindred spirits for the movie ad thing, because I'm not the first person to obsess over movie ads. There are people that have done it before me. Michael Ferrari, a.k.a. Cinema Dumit, was his persona online. And he used to run newsprint ads on his Facebook page. And there was a guy named Don Diskowski, who had a page called Vintage Newsprint, Vintage Newspaper Ads, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Don, if I got it wrong. And Lana Revick, who has a great page called Starts Today. Um, she writes for Drive and Asylum also. And uh, she also has branched out into sharing newsprint ads for novels that have come out. Because apparently, you know, there I didn't really realize that they promoted novels in the newspaper as much as they did oh wow uh, but look you know she's got her finger right on that pulse of the novels um she's just got a lot of great ideas and, and a great eye for an interesting ad uh, her page is called starts today wow and uh she's on instagram as vint vintage newsprint movie ads okay cool so look her up too <laughs> Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. 
There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Who's a good friend of mine? Um, he has a website called BNS About Movies. He does uh, a review site with his wife Becca. But Sam writes for Drive and Asylum and has and also contributes original art. Uh, so he's been with me a long time. Bradley Steele Harding, who's a filmmaker, he has a new movie coming out called Thirteen Tracks to Frighten Agatha Black. He's been in Drive and Asylum a lot. J.H. Rude, who's another filmmaker that I'm familiar with. I was in one of his movies, by the way. Oh, nice. It's called The Abode of Mad Tales. I play a <laughs> horror movie host in it. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, good for you, man. Uh, there's a lot of great people out there, you know, that, that just sort of gravitated towards it. And I, I've been really fortunate. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, I, it's funny because I have on Facebook, I have a Retro TV Guide Scans page. And I recently, probably a few months ago, it was probably around the time of um, the um, April Ghoul's Drive-In, I, I added the name um, and vintage newspaper movie ads or something like that to it because mm -hmm. I was just diving into them so deeply and I started posting those and I was like, oh, I feel bad for the TV Guide fans, so maybe I should alter it. <laughs> So now I do both, you know. TV Guide is the great undiscovered country for me because I I remember it so well. I read it every week. I was obsessed with the ads, and the ads were always original. But you can't find an online archive for TV Guide. You have to actually own the issue right. to get it. Right, 
doesn't it do you ever maybe it's just me, but I'm curious to know if you've ever if you've ever thought of this in your life. If you ever had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to your, you know, talk to your younger self and give your younger self some advice. If I were to do that, I would tell myself, keep all the TV guides and cut out all the newspaper movie ads. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you would tell your younger self. That's exactly what I would tell my younger self. <laughs> That's why we're kindred spirits. <laughs> That's yeah. It's um. I would definitely tell my younger self to to save everything because one day it's going to be worth a lot of money. You know what I used to have that I threw out that I could just kick myself. I was obsessed with the movie Alien. Yeah. And that was that was like even though I had never seen it, I didn't see it until it came on HBO because unfortunately my mom saw it in a theater and she was one of the people because that ad campaign for alien didn't really tell you what the movie was about right which is one of the reasons it's so brilliant um so she was one of the people that went to see it opening weekend didn't know what she was in for (laughs) and it scared the shit out of her so she would not take me to see that movie even though i wanted to see it so bad but she did break down and she bought me the alien action figure created by kenner oh yeah do you remember it yeah oh yeah (laughs) it was like a foot tall it was the creature from alien it was it was wonderfully detailed and nobody bought it because it was scary and why would you buy your child a toy of such a scary sexualized monster i mean like it's the head was like completely phallic right um so it was a very ill-conceived child's toy but i did have one and I can still remember the day I went into my closet and just started putting things in a garbage bag and throwing them away. And I oh. threw it out. So what was I thinking? Oh. I, I don't know. But that thing is worth a grand now. Oh, wow. If you still have the original box. And that's at least a grand. Isn't that the one where you press the back of his head and the and the inner mouth would shoot out? Yes. Yes. That is the, the, the very one. Yeah, I remember that. I never had it, but I always wanted it. <laughs> It was beautiful. I can tell you. It came with a poster inside of the creature, and um, the, oh, the the head, the 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 dome of the head came off, and there were like skull ridges underneath of it. Oh wow! Which apparently was a that that is the design of the original creature, but you don't see it in the movie because they darkened the dome oh, okay. so that you couldn't see the skull. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's great. Wow, yeah, it's just funny. I mean, so many toys I destroyed as a kid that I kick myself. You know, I once destroyed a <laughs> Star Wars Land of the Jawas action playset. Now, I was 19, mind you, oh. and I worked at a comic book shop, and the ne- the very next day, I think I blew it up with firecrackers, the very next day I'm looking at a price guide, and it was worth 200 and I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> well, at least it was an inspired death. Right, yeah. The, the, the Empire came in and killed them all, so... <laughs> I had the Death Star Space Station, which was basically a Barbie's dream house for boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, It had three levels and an elevator that connected them, and that was a lot of fun and probably worth a whole bunch of money today. Oh, yeah. threw it away. That's the one that had the trash compactor that had all kinds of, like, little foam that was supposed to be the trash. And that little Loch Ness Monster-looking monster that was in there. (laughs) Oh, man. My my rosebud was the Millennium Falcon. I always wanted the Millennium Falcon, and I never got it. Me too. <laughs> you? Oh, my God. Yeah, I wanted that so bad. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. It was expensive, though. I know. That's why we never got it, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot of money. I understand why no adults wanted to spend that amount of money right. for me. 
Oh, that's so amazing. And, um, you know, with one thing I love about uh, getting back to your um, driving asylum fanzine, yeah. each issue, it's they're not just willy-nilly. It's not like you're just slapping a bunch of ads in and hoping for the best. You've got a theme for each one, which I really love. Yeah, I, the, the collages that I put in there all have some sort of connecting theme, usually. You know, like um, one one collage I did was all movies that had been released by Hallmark Releasing, which is one of my favorite companies. They put out Last House on the Left, Oh yeah. Don't Look in the Basement, um, Don't Open the Window, which was a zombie movie called Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Oh, right, right. Um, they changed all the titles to these movies and made them as lurid and sensational as possible. And that's why I love them. Their ad campaigns were just beautiful. So that that's a theme. And then there's, um, you know, one I did showed, uh, I picked out a whole bunch of ads that showed decapitated heads. <laughs> there's always <laughs> some sort of connection. People that are being choked, uh, victims that are being held by a monster, uh, stuff like that. It's fun. It's, I have a lot of fun doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just got your um, tribute to Horror Host issue, which not only just had newspaper ads, it had quite a few TV listings, which was great. But I was surprised to see that mm -hmm. actually horror hosts, some horror hosts were advertised in the newspaper. I did not know that. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise for me, too. Uh, but yeah, while mostly the, the newspaper advertisements for horror hosts were the horror hosts would make appearances in local theaters a lot of times oh, right. like um there was um well vampira did you know she's one of the the first big horror hosts and, and she was only on the air for like a year right which is amazing uh but she did a lot of in-person appearances there was a guy out of la called seymour who was a horror host and he did a lot of yep. the theatrical appearances you know introducing movies at the local theaters so yeah, I, w I was surprised by that as well. Yeah, yeah. Th I thought that was – actually, I was pleasantly surprised to find that. And you get a lot of cool interviews in your magazines too. Do you do any of them yourself or is it just the other writers? No, I do a lot of them myself. You know, when I started it, when I started the magazine, uh, I had a short list of my dream interviews. And I've, I've got about half of them so far. And I didn't even think I'd get one. Um, but I wanted to write about the movies that nobody talks about. Yeah. That's one of the the cornerstones of why I do what I do, you know, online, in print. I want to talk about movies because that's one of the biggest disappointments for me is there's a great there are great magazines uh, out there, but they they never talk about the stuff that I want to talk about, the movies that I want to talk about. Right. So I just created my own and I started doing it and I was inspired uh, that aspect of it, an, a great author named Lee Gambin. Um, he's an Australian guy, and he's a you know fantastic film historian. Um, he's written a couple of different books. One was about eco horror called Massacred by Mother Nature. Uh, he wrote a couple of the term escapes monograph. I think is the, he he wrote a couple of monographs, which is a book about a single movie. Uh, he wrote he wrote one about Cujo oh, wow. and uh, the Howling as well. Oh, nice. And he, you know, he he's a very enthusiastic author, film author. But he reached out to me, and he offered to give me because I wasn't going to have stuff like that in it. It was just going to be a scrapbook of 
of ads. And, you know, every once in a while, we'd have some reviews in there. And, uh, but I did have these people that I wanted to talk to. And I just wasn't, I didn't think I could make it happen. Because I thought, you know, oh, how am I going to get in touch with these people? But Lee reached out to me and he was like, hey, I see you're doing, because I hyped something online about how our next issue was going to be about the movie Frogs. <laughs> uh, this was Drive-In Asylum number four. And he reached out to me. He's like, hey, I have an interview with Joan Van Ark that you can use. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, my God, really? You'd, you'd let me run that? And he was like, yeah, it ran in Fangoria years ago, but I own the article and I'll let you run it. Nice. So um, he inspired me a lot to do that. And, and he used to write on his social media all the time about the people that he was talking to. And basically, he was just like, yeah, I just reached out to them online. And that's how I got connected with these people. So I started doing it, too. I started courting people that I wanted to do an interview with and you know I, I tried to be you know not pushy about it yeah but one of the first people that i wanted to reach out she was one of the first actors that i ever thought of to do an interview with was her name is linda gillen mm -hmm. and she was in a fabulous movie from 1972 called the folks at red wolf inn oh yeah aka terror house right um <laughs> and it's about a young woman who gets sort suckered into this sort of human trafficking scam where she's lured to this seaside resort promising a, a vacation but when she gets there she starts to realize that the people who run this place are cannibals and they're luring people there like to use them as meat yeah <laughs> and um i saw it on wor's fright night yep many many years ago you remember that yeah. oh yeah yeah in fact i oh, oh, go ahead and i'll tell you afterwards <laughs> well um i saw that movie on fright night and i just fell in love right away with the movie and nobody ever talks about it and i thought how awesome would it be to get to talk to linda gillen who's the lead actress in this about it and finally i got her to agree to it and she was so nice i did a nice long interview i talked about other movies she was in including the magic garden of stanley sweetheart um she did some appearances, smaller roles in movies like uh, Windows, that 1980s uh, pseudo slasher with Elizabeth Ashley right. and Talia Shire. <laughs> she had a lot of insight about these you know, lesser known movies. And I just kept going from there. I, I just kept reaching out. Um, Tony Lawrence, who was in a movie called Pigs. Yep. She was the lead in Pigs. Um, and she, she agreed to an interview. She's been in Drive-In Asylum. Yep. Um, D Douglas McKeon, who's the director of The Deadly Spawn. Nice. Um, you know, I, I had a whole issue about Messiah of Evil. Oh, wow. Uh, the fantastic film, if you haven't seen it. It's a little obscure, but it's starting to pick up a great reputation yes. as time goes by. Um, I got in touch with, um, oh, after I talked to Linda, Linda happens to be personal friends with Mariana Hill who was in a whole bunch of movies, including The Godfather Part Two, oh, wow. High Plains Drifter, um, with Clint Eastwood. Yep. But she was also in Messiah of Evil. And Linda was like, here's her phone number. Call her up. She'll talk to you. <laughs> and she did. That's awesome. <laughs> she, she was really nice. And I was like, wow, this is easier than I thought. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been so exciting, that part of it. Yeah. That's amazing. Good for you, man. That's so cool. Who are some of the dream guests that you ha have yet to get on the show? If you can say their names. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can say their names. I say their names all the time. They're like mantras. Rosie Holitik, who was in Don't Look in the Basement. Okay. 
and Horror High. Oh, right. A- AKA Twisted Brain. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Rosie, you know, she's been one of my dream interviews from the very beginning because Don't Look in the Basement is one of my all-time faves. Yeah. Um, but apparently, you know, I, I don't want to say too much, but I, I think she's not all that enthusiastic about her appearances in these low-budget horror films. <laughs> uh, she's since gone on to a lot, a lot more greater things. Uh, she's had a lot of success in real estate. Uh, she's a realtor now out of uh, Texas, somewhere in Texas. So she's a little bit reluctant, or so I've heard, to talk about this. I haven't completely written it off yet. I, I, if anyone can talk to her, it's me. Well, there you go. Tenacity is the key, man. <laughs> um, so she's definitely one person that, that I have not been able to contact yet. Wow. Yeah, you just got to keep at him. I find with, with certain guests on the show, I... I, I'll send out the inquiry to their publicist or something, and then I'll circle back a couple weeks later and say, hey, just following up. And it, it's actually worked out well where they go, oh, yeah, hey, oh, sorry, we didn't get back to you, you know, that kind of thing. Another person that I would love to get in the magazine is uh, his name is Zooey Hall. He's an actor mostly seen in the early 70s, and he did a film called Poor Albert, Little Annie. And it was reissued a couple years after it debuted as I Dismember Mama. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Which is a title that has nothing to do with the content of the film. Right. <laughs> uh, but Zooey Hall's performance in this is so astonishingly bleak and frightening. And I would just love to talk to him about that. Um, there's another movie called Scream Bloody Murder. Yep. That came out now I, I know what i know the one you're thinking of that's called scream bloody murder that's the one about the guy who has a hook for a hand yes this movie was also called scream bloody murder but it was made by a completely different crew it came out within six weeks of the hook for a hand scream bloody murder huh. and uh, it was thus titled my brother has bad dreams oh weird and um i would love to talk to anybody who was in the cast of that um the lead unfortunately passed away the year after the movie came out, but there were other people who are in the film that I would love to talk to. Um, so th- that's just a couple people that I'm still on the hunt for. Yeah, yeah, good for you, man. Yeah, keep it up. You know, it's it it just this is another thing to tell the folks at home that you're going to get these amazing people, and you've gotten so many amazing people that they need, really need to read this fanzine. Yeah. Speaking of Horror High coming up uh, in one of the future issues, we're going to have an interview with the lead from Horror High, Pat Cardi. Oh, nice. Who played Vernon in in, in Horror High. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was sort of like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, mad scientist kid in Horror High. That's so um, that's very exciting. <laughs> Pat already said that he would do it. I just have yet to call him and talk to him about it. That's great. Oh, good for you, man. That's so cool. You know, and I was what I was going to say about um, Fright Night was uh, we when we, yeah. we I grew up in the Boston area, so just north of Boston, and we when we first got cable, we would get WR and WPIX, which was Channel Nine and Channel Eleven from New York, and I, we my mother and I would stay up late on the weekends and we'd watch Chiller on PIX and Fright Night on WOR. And recently on the show, um, if you get a chance, you can find it in our list of shows, whether it's on iTunes or our website or whatever. We I interviewed James Arena, who wrote a whole book about Fright Night. 
and he goes into yeah, yeah. I have that. Book. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's such a great handbook on that show, and it's like it just brings back fond memories as well. Well, I have to remember that you did that and go listen to it. I wasn't aware. Yeah, yeah, he was really good on that. I'm trying to get him back on the show to talk about movies, but he's got such a crazy schedule. But you know, it's it's funny too. One thing I love is when I'm doing the research and I'm looking at, let's say. 1977, of course, that's the year of Star Wars. Um, and I'm looking at these newspaper ads in my research, and I'm seeing all these movies. And I'm going, yeah, I saw that, I saw that, I saw that. And, you know, I, I can name all the ones I saw in the theater, with, mainly with my parents. But then I see ones that I didn't recognize. I'm like, wait a minute. Why didn't I see that movie? I would have loved that movie. What the heck is going on here? You yeah. Know? And I think half the time, some of them are, as you mentioned earlier, they're retitled. Movie gets issued, doesn't do well, so they change the title, put it back out, make it sound more lurid. But it's just, it's an amazing thing to find movies that I hadn't seen before, that I didn't even hear of. You Do you find that too? Yeah, that happens to me all the time. And it's very exciting because, you know, we always think we own, we know everything right. about movies. <laughs> <laughs> At least, you know, I do. And um, you know, oh, I, yeah. I'm constantly proving myself wrong by finding all this fabulous stuff that was out there and I just wasn't aware of. So, uh, yeah, I, I love doing that. Or And like you said, uh, sometimes the movies were reissued under different titles and that's a that's very exciting for me too uh, because that's a recurring column if you want to call it in drive an asylum um, i don't write anything it's just a collage but i like to group together collages of movies that are you know ads for movies that are alternate titles right and uh, it's called ak also known as yep, yep. and um, i've done it in maybe like seven or eight issues so far we have a uh, 22 issues. We're about to do our 22nd issue, by the way. And uh, we have five specials so far. So we're coming up on 27 total issues. Wow. And it's quarterly, right? Technically, we're a quarterly publication. Yes. I've gotten, I've gotten a little off my schedule with the pandemic. Uh. And also because uh, we also started doing a weekly webcast on Facebook. Uh, it's a live webcast every Saturday night called the Drive-In Asylum Double Feature. So I've sort of been teaching myself video production and I just totally fell down the rabbit hole with doing video production when we started doing the, the weekly show. So I fell behind in my magazine production, uh, but we're still going to have four quarterly issues this year and uh, two specials. Nice. Nice. So uh, it, I just got my months off a little bit. And so, but um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so... You, I, oh. I was saying something, but I can't remember what it was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was... Oh, I was talking about... I, I know what it was. I was talking about movies that have alternate titles. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's one of the big thrills of doing what I do for me, because once in a while, I'll find an ad for a movie, and I'll be like, what the heck is this movie? And I found one not too long ago for this movie called After Elizabeth Died. Hmm. And I was like, what, what the heck is this movie? And then I looked and saw who was who the stars were, and it was uh, Joseph Cotton and Elkie Summer. Oh, so you know what movie that is? Yeah, it, uh, I, my brain's not working right now. Refresh me. Baron Blood. That's right, Baron Blood. <laughs> of all things, I guess you know that, and and it dawned on me. I was like, oh, they must have come up with this alternate ad campaign because one thing that a lot of people might not realize is in the early seventies. In the 60s and even the early 70s, movies started to come out with the word blood in the title. Right. But some newspapers wouldn't print the ads for that. 
Like they would either blot out the word blood or they would change it. So my best explanation for this is that, you know, the, the company, it was American International Pictures that put out Barren Blood. They must have come up with an alternate ad campaign for it that didn't have the word blood in the title for, <laughs> for squeamish newspapers. <laughs> That's great. One of my favorites is um, it was uh, the first of the, the Jess Franco uh, quadrilogy there. It was the, um, about the Knights Templars. Uh, oh, it's driving me crazy now. The Blind the Dead. The Blind Dead. And they released... Yeah, that's that was uh, Armando D'Asorio. Armando D'Asorio. I'm Jeff sorry. Yeah, yeah. And they released it here. I think they re-released it, and it had this alternate opening where... Because <laughs> they changed the title to Escape from Planet Ape. Yeah, <laughs> Revenge from Re- Planet Revenge Ape. Revenge from Planet it Ape, that's cool. right. <laughs> That is what that is a golden moment of cinema, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Which is great because you can find that alternate opening on on YouTube, and it's just it's it totally takes the premise and throws it out the window and makes it this completely bizarro premise about you know like a Planet of the Apes ripoff, basically. Only because I mm-hmm. guess the guy the ad guys looked at the the Blind Dead and thought they looked like apes. So <laughs> I don't know. I can't explain it. Yeah. That's that is opportunism at its finest, and I I've actually found a whole bunch of ads for Revenge from Planet Ape. I'm always excited when I see one. Yeah, <laughs> it was mostly in the Southwest, like Texas. Texas was a great place for all of these movies. You know, movies that barely got a theatrical release, they were playing in Texas somewhere. I'm telling you, like for it's, up until the '80s, the early '80s. You know, there were a lot of. Um, Movies that appeared to be direct to video, yeah, uh, in in the later '80s, but you can find them on screens in Texas, and you know even movies that just barely got a theatrical release somewhere in Texas, there was a drive-in that had it. Uh, so I'm always scouring the Texas newspapers for. These. It's funny that you say that because I discovered the same thing, and I found El Paso is like a hotbed for yeah. every single one of these movies that nobody's ever heard of. It's golden. Yeah. Like, even a lot of the martial arts films, which, you know, I do another show where we talk about movies from the Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Westerns, and I try looking up ads for those, and they say, oh, well, this one was really popular over here, and I only find it in Texas. <laughs> I don't find it anywhere else mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. If you're an ad hunter, go out there and look for look in the papers for anywhere in Texas, but El Paso especially, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yep. And also uh, anywhere in Connecticut, look in New England, because in New England, a lot of those obscure films came out. That was where uh, Hallmark Releasing was based, actually. Oh. And Hallmark Releasing, they were, they were a subdivision of American International Pictures. Okay. And I think they were based out of Boston, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So um, in the Boston, Hartford, Connecticut area, uh, you'll see a lot of these movies that were carried by Hallmark. But what they like to do is they like to do a test run in the local drive-ins of a movie that they, a property they had just picked up, and they would just choose a title for it and see if people went to see it under this title. And if they didn't, they'd put it out in another theater under another title. Wow. Um, Don't Don't Look in the Basement was one of their movies. And before they called it Don't Look in the Basement, the director, S.F. Brownrigg, called it The Forgotten. Hmm. And it ran in Texas as The Forgotten and a couple other places in the United States as The Forgotten. Then Hallmark picked it up, put it out, and the first title that they chose for it was, or one of the first titles that they chose for it was um, 
Death Ward number 13. Huh. That's funny. <laughs> Death Ward number 13. <laughs> and they also, they also tried uh, another title called The Snake Pit. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Beyond Help. Wow. Was another one. Beyond Help. And this was all in the, yeah, this was all in the New England area. And I love finding those ads as well. And then they decided on Don't Look in the Basement. That title stuck. And that's what they went with. Right, right. I've been having trouble trying to find the um the Boston Globe ads. Um, I I think I'm gonna have to really? just either knuckle down and and get a subscription to like uh, one of the one of the other ones, the bigger newspaper archives, and just get into the Boston Globe ads. You know, because I that that's a question actually I had for you is what I like to do, especially like with the TV guide and then moving into newspapers, is I like to go back and find movies. Or TV shows that I saw at the time and find the ads for them, whether it was in the theater or on TV. Do you do the same thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very personal to do this kind of stuff. It's all it, a lot of it springs from your own experience, really. So you just go and you look for them. Oh, I remember watching TV on this night. Like um, I can remember this. This is a really generic one, but I remember the first time they showed the movie Halloween on television. Oh, yeah. And that was October 30th, 1981. Yeah. And that was also the same night that Halloween 2 debuted theatrically. But, uh, you know, I used to, I always go to whatever newspaper it is on that night. I'll go and see if they advertise Halloween 2 in the, or Halloween, the, the TV premiere in the newspaper. Right. Um, also, like staying up late and watching Fright Night. I, I've I've gone back and I've traced, you know, oh, that's what date that was that I watched this movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So you grew up in the New York area? No, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, that's right. You said that. And so, yeah, so yeah. Um, you were able to get that on cable, I assume? Yeah, it was uh, one of the early super stations that we got was WOR from New York. We also got Channel 43 WUAB out of Cleveland. Oh, wow. And um, eventually we got TBS Ted Turner's right. station out of Atlanta. Right. We haven't had those channels here in years. And I think for us in, in the Boston area, the WOR and PIX got pulled because of um, Red Sox games. And so they would always have blackouts because if they're playing the Yankees or the Mets, it was like, well, there's no point, I guess. So, I, you know, I don't really follow sports, but I, I think ultimately they had such similar programming. And then when the, the networks came out, like the UPN and the WB and all them, they just... They yeah. they pulled them because it's like, well, why have two WB channels or stations in Boston, you know? Yeah, I am not a sports fan. And one of the reasons is because it was always preempting some shit I wanted to That's watch right. on TV. <laughs> I used to stay up late watching. Uh, I would have to sit through whatever stupid baseball game was on, which I hated. And then uh, I think it was on PIX. And then there was the independent network news. And then finally they'd play Star Trek. And so I like mm-hmm. would be up at like one in the morning. My mother's like, "Are you still awake?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm waiting for Star Trek. I'm have to sit through all this stupid crap." <laughs> yeah, it was a bummer. So tell us a little bit more about your um your online movie watching parties that you have going on. Is that's under Groovy Doom, right? Yeah, uh, if you go to Facebook on the Groovy Doom page, that's what I chose that page to do the weekly screenings because I do have a page for Drive and Asylum, but. It doesn't have as many followers. And I thought, well, I'm going to put the live broadcast on the page that has more followers naturally. Right. So, but some people have been a little confused by that. So I apologize. Um, our live broadcast is on the Groovy Doom page. It's every Saturday night. Uh, Sam Panico and I are the regular hosts. And we also 
occasionally have a third host. Um, another person that writes for Drive-In Asylum is Gigi Graham. Uh, she's a fantastic film journalist. She has her own website called midnightmoviemonster.com. I encourage everyone to go read her stuff. She's an incredibly insightful author, um, very witty, very economical in the way that she talks about. She's not long-winded. She gets right to the point and she's right on it. Um, she hosted the show with us last night and it was very exciting uh, for us anyway, because we love her. That's awesome. <laughs> but um yeah, so um, Gigi Graham is hosted with us. Lana Revick is going to be on the show next Saturday night. I think that's the 11th, um, July 11th. Yes. Uh, Sunday's the 11th. Uh, okay, so the 10th. Yeah. Um, so July 10th, uh, Lana Revick will be on the show. Uh, Bradley's been on the show. I mentioned him. Dustin's been on the show. Uh, J.H. Rude has been on the show. So, you know, at, folks associated with Drive-In Asylum mostly have done it. Another thing we did is we did a, we did an afternoon screening of the folks at Red Wolf Inn and Linda Gillen came on the show and she did she did the show with us, which was exciting to have an actor from the film. That's great. Right there with us to talk to. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And do you have to get the rights to the movies? No, because we don't actually screen the movie. Um, oh. We ch what happens is we you know, I, that's a that's a really serious legal entanglement. To, to screen the movie and to encourage people to watch it. And I researched this, even if you're not charging people money for watching the film, you, you still might owe somebody money for public performance rights. So instead we chose to, we, we pick movies that you can stream online for free. Okay. So what we do is we go on before the movie, we, we talk for anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. So it's like podcast length. Right. And, and then um, we have regular segments. I do a, an ad gallery for each movie that we have on, like a video ad gallery. We play that and talk over it. We're looking at uh, newsprint ads because I can't stray too far from that. <laughs> my passion. Um, and Sam comes up with a cocktail for every beverage. So there's a cocktail segment. Uh, we talk about... The making of the film then we we have a countdown we get everybody you know basically on the same page at the end of the countdown we click start um, and sign off and then after the movie's over we come back we talk about that one there's a there's a middle segment and then at, we close it down before the movie starts come back after the second movie and do a third segment nice that's awesome yeah it, it, it skirts the legal rights issue. That's perfect. That is so cool. Other people have, have gotten around it. Um, there's a fabulous horror host named Uncle Spooky. Oh, yeah. It's Uncle with a, with a K in the middle. He's in the horror host issue, by yes. the way. Yeah. Um, did you receive that I yet? I did. I got it the other day. I, I loved it. Oh, perfect. Um, Uncle Spooky's been on the show uh, once or twice, and he has a great weekly program. He does two movies every week on Tuesdays and Fridays. I don't know how he does it, but um, he his show is a Zoom meeting, and you can do that in a Zoom meeting because that's private. Oh, okay. Um, you have to you have to have an invitation to it, so that makes it a private meeting, and you don't owe anybody any any perform public performance rights for that. So uh, he actually does screen the movie, so that's another way you could get it, or you could only show public domain films, but everybody shows public domain films, so you know, right? Why do that? Yeah. 
That's great. Oh man. You had a lot going on. That's so cool. Here's another thing. There's another thing I wanted to say sure. before we move on. Yeah. We were talking about watching movies on Fright Night and scouring the TV guide. Mm-hmm. This is a way that the consumption of films has changed. And in my opinion, it's not as good as it used to be. I know every old person says that. <laughs> but the fact is, this is how we learned about a lot of these movies. Because it wasn't always something that you, quote unquote, wanted to watch that was on these weekly programs. But you got in the habit of watching a horror movie on Saturday nights. And usually, no matter what the movie was, I would tune in and watch it. And that exposed me to a lot of things that I ordinarily wouldn't have approached exactly on my own. And yeah, so like somebody else picked that programming out and that is completely gone. I mean, it's not completely gone. I I should, I retract that statement. Um, It's, it's, you have to choose to have your movies curated for you now. Right. By watching a, a show like Joe Bob's show. I've only started to really see this in action when we started doing our show. Because a lot of people that watch it, they're like, I never saw any of these movies before. And that makes me really happy because uh, that was my experience when I was younger. And it was every week that this this movie slot was on. Um, one of them was Ghost Host. He was um, a horror host out of Baltimore. Hmm. And he was, you know, syndicated to Pittsburgh. Movies like or, or slots like Fright Night and Ghost Host. Chiller Theater was a local Pittsburgh one that was just fabulous. I watched a lot of these movies and it was the first time I'd ever seen them. And now that experience, you know, it's harder to get that because everything is immediate now. Like you don't have to wait till a certain time of the day to watch the movie. Right. Uh, You can watch it. It's on demand basically. And you don't have to, there's no ceremony from that part anymore. That was part of the fun. Wasn't it like waiting for this to come on? Yeah, it's so true. And like in Boston, we had something called Creature Double Feature, which was, I think there was one like that in Philadelphia, too. It was the same title. Um, And it was on a Saturday afternoon, and all we had was a voiceover. We didn't actually have a host. But people Mm -hmm. still, to this day, fondly remember that when I worked at a cable station a few years back, I created a show called Monster Movie Matinee, and I did it in the spirit of Creature Double Feature. And there were so many people that would stop me on the street. They're like, oh, my God, do you do that Creature Feature show? Like, yeah. They're like, oh, when my nephew comes over every Saturday, we sit down and we watch it, and we love it. You know, it's just like Creature Double Feature. And you don't have that experience anymore. And and more to the point, you know, back in the day, too, to, to, to build on what you had already said, if you missed something, you missed it. There was no oh, yeah. DVR. There was no tapes, DVDs, whatever. It was if you, you would have to find it. You had it to in, wait till the next time it was right. on. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the problem I see with the, with the TV watching today is, all right, yeah, it's great that pretty much every movie now is at our fingertips. We can get it on, on whatever physical media or streaming service. But where do the kids go? Where do they begin? They don't even know. Like you said, you know, people telling you, oh, I never even heard of those movies before. Well, we need to be able to inform them about these things. They don't know where to start. You know, we had guides. We had not only the TV guide, literally, but we had Famous Monsters and other magazines to... Mm-hmm. to tantalize us and go, oh, oh, I read about that in the magazine. I want to see that, you know, or I like that actor. They don't have that anymore. Yeah, because a lot of these horror host slots and, and even the ones that didn't have a host, it was just a, a slot on TV. Right. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily choosing 
these movies because they the movies came to them in a package a syndicated package so but still that was still uh, it was it was somewhat random but it was still being curated for us somehow and you know there were there were these movies that we had never heard of before that they were showing us so yeah it was it was a much different experience and it, it it was a little more exciting in my opinion oh yeah yeah, absolutely. And those packages, too, introduced us to, like, all kinds of things, like the AIP films, but also the, the Universal Classics, which, you know... Oh, sure. You know, these kids have to see these movies. In fact, we're doing a series on this show about getting people into horror movies, and that that's where we started, was with the Universal Monster Films, because it's the best way to start, especially if they're even younger. You know, it's black and white. They're kind of tame by today's standards. They're still scary, though, on a certain level. You know, when I was a kid, those were terrifying. <laughs> yeah, they really were. Uh, you know, all it had to be was dark and spooky and lightning. And then there's a weird face in the darkness. Yeah. And that, that was scary. That's <laughs> so true. Um, and, and I wonder I wonder about that. Like our younger kids today watching the 1931 Dracula or Frankenstein. Like, are they interested in these movies at all? And I don't know the answer to that. Well, I can tell you that my two kids did, and now my grandson does, and he's four, and he loves them. So it's really up to the people, if you've got, you know, a niece, a nephew, a, a you know, cousin, whatever, you really got to just sit them down and just explain to them, first of all, why there's no color in the film if they ask you, you know, which is it's funny yeah. to think about. Because to us, if I see something... That's a big idea to get used to yeah. for them. You know, like my grandson's four, he's used to it. So if I'm watching something in black and white, he never questions it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing is we just really got to keep this stuff in the pop culture, keep it relevant and, and expose them to it. And it's like you can enjoy your modern films, but you got to understand where these movies came from. It's like music. You know, you got to understand the Beatles in order to appreciate some modern music, you know. Yeah. Same thing with the horror movies. You got to understand the RKOs and the Universals and the, you know, all what's his name that did the cat people and all that um you've just got to exp- oh val luton. val luton i couldn't think of the name the producer of val luton. yeah you know you've got it's got to ex- you know i mean when we were kids you and i there were every year you were guaranteed a movie with at least one of the three vincent price peter cushing and christopher lee and <laughs> that would come out in the year and chances are all three of them had a movie that would come out in the year we don't have that anymore. We don't, I interviewed this guy, Bill Oberst Jr., who's a who's an actor, and he's he's basically considered a modern horror star, and he loves that title and he embraces that title because there aren't many around anymore that that do that. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I guess a lot of the people that work with Rob Zombie could be considered because he was in Three from Hell. Bill Oberst right. Jr. Yep. It made me think of like you know Sid Haig. Yeah. And but even. Even those folks, you know, a, a lot of it, the reason that they're in these movies is nostalgia for movies that they did before. I don't think there are very many actors who are now making a name for themselves as horror actors in modern horror films. Are there? Well, I mean, I mean they're getting old, but you got Robert England, you got Lance Henriksen, but they're getting up there in years. You know, we need a, a new crop mm-hmm. of actors that have the chops to do it and can embrace it, not be afraid of being typecast. You know, if you're a good actor, you're a good actor. It didn't matter. Vincent Price could do anything. That's the truth. Yeah. And, and he, he gave everything that 
he had to all of those roles, even though a lot of actors would have just been like, oh, it's a horror movie. Right. You know, he approached it from an, he did everything with a very Shakespearean dedication. And that's what made it so great, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I love that he wasn't like that. I love that Vincent Price wasn't like that in his real life. (laughs) That he was like this guy that liked to cook and had all this appreciation for art. Right, right. You know, he he was not a creepy guy. He wasn't really the Witchfinder General, you know? (laughs) Sadly, no. So what are some of your favorite cult grindhouse horror movies? Oh, wow. Well, I already mentioned Don't Look in the Basement, Terror House. Horror High was a huge one. Uh, that was one that I watched on TV all the time. It was called Twisted Brain. Oh yeah, on TV, and that you know these were the movies that scarred me as a child. <laughs> um, the great website Kindertrauma.com. Go out and look for it. Um, it's my friends Lance and John run that site, and um, you know th- there were these moments in movies that just scarred us, and that was sort of where I was coming from with these horror and grindhouse films because they were the ones that really went for the lurid stuff. You know, the the universal monsters were, you know, like I said, the black and white shadowy sort of scary monster movies. But the Grindhouse films showed you things like a bloody head. Yeah. And, you know, the the exploitation films wanted to show you severed limbs. And Horror High um, had this horrifying moment where a character's face was shoved into a barrel of acid and pulled back out and it was melting. (laughs) And I was like guard by that um i still can't believe they showed that on tv and they show a dead cat in a puddle of blood which to a child you know even to an adult the death of an animal is traumatic but to a child it was like oh my god you know how could this happen um another important one for me was frogs yep which is we just watched that last night on the program with dg graham um Frogs was crucial to me because that was the first time that I saw a character in a movie die on screen oh, in, in a horrible way. Yeah. Um, there was a woman that gets attacked by all these uh, animals in a bog. And one of the things that happens to her, she's bitten by a rattlesnake. And, you know, uh, rather unrealistically, she's dead in about five seconds after she's bitten by the snake. <laughs> but somehow her corpse turns blue before your very eyes. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, what happened to her? Yeah. And I, whoever I was watching the movie with was like, well, she's dead now. Like the snake bit her and she died. And I was just traumatized by that. <laughs> Something in such a PG movie as Frogs. You right. Know? But, um, so those were some biggies. Um, since then, I've gotten a little more bad taste. And I really delved into the backgrounds of S.F. Brownrigg, the director who made Don't Look in the Basement. There were three other movies that don't get as much attention as Don't Look in the Basement. Uh, One's called Don't Open the Door, Keep My Grave Open, and Scum of the Earth, a.k.a. Poor White Trash Part 2. Oh, okay, yeah. Those, I I love all, all four of his horror movies. He made one other movie, and it was like a teen sex comedy from the 80s that I that I have not seen. Yeah. Um, those are some examples. And also, um, I just got introduced recently to this fabulous, and this is like low, ultra low budget filmmaking. It's called, um, massage parlor murders. Oh yeah. And it's, have you heard yes. of that one? Yeah, I have. Was it, was that Sandra Peabody from, huh? I was going to ask you, was that Graydon Clark? No, 
no, it's not Graydon Clark's. Uh, but Sandra Peabody from Last House on the Left is in it. Okay. Um, she's uh, Mary from Last House on the Or no, wait, was she Phyllis? One of the two. Okay. Yeah, Sandra Peabody was Mary in Last House on the Left. She's in Massage Parlor Murders also. Okay. Um, and it's just this like really ultra low budget film, sort of like a Doris Wishman type movie where it was looks like it was just shot on short ends and um, it pasted together with this dubbed in soundtrack in a lot of places. But it's fabulous because it was shot in New York in the early 70s. And there's so much footage of like Times Square and just different areas of New York. It's almost like a travelogue. Yeah. It's this time capsule. Exactly. And I'm really into it for that reason. I, I was going to use that term, too. I love uh, watching a lot of these old Grindhouse movies, especially when they're set in New York, because they are time capsules. You know, you get to this. And, and because of the the gritty filmmaking, it really gives that authentic feel to it. Like you're almost there. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, it's it, it, it's it's easy to uh, just get lost in that kind of a footage, even though at the time that was probably in really poor taste because who wanted to go to the movies and see footage of, you know, people on the streets of New York at that time. Right. Uh, they might've wanted their money back after they went to see something like that. That's awesome. uh, and speaking of movies that was, that were shot on short ends, the child from 1977 uh, was another obscure film that I, that I came to, I think I came to know that in the nineties. Uh, I hunted it down on a bootleg VHS. The child, if you're not familiar with it, is about a little girl who's, she's telekinetic, but nobody knows. And also her, her mother has just passed away and she's obsessed with the fact that her mother died. She blames all the people around her for her mother's death. So what she does is she, she animates zombies from the local cemetery oh, wow. to go out and murder all these people that she's angry at <laughs> <laughs> and the the action of the child takes place where um a, a young woman comes to their house to be her new nanny because her mother's gone now and her her, her father hires this young woman to be her governess i guess and uh you know chaos ensues <laughs> that's great <laughs> but it's this gorgeous uh, low budget, ultra low budget movie that sounds like um, the audio sounds like it was just dubbed in from a Halloween record from the 1970s. <laughs> it's like really, really low budget. That's great. Uh, so probably, you know, you have to have a certain kind of taste, acquired taste oh, yeah. for a cheap movie like this. Yeah. But it's <laughs> it's really phantasmagorical. And I mean that in a sincere way. Um, it's, it's like a, a nightmare captured on film. And that's the best way to describe that movie. That that's a that's one of my favorite Grindhouse, cheapo, bizarro movies. Yeah, that's I gotta check that one out. I have I've not heard of that. Um, I was watching Track of the Moon Beast the other day, and it's just <gasps> oh. you know, it's just one of those movies that it it fills that need for the cheap Grindhouse <laughs> kind of thing. Track of the Moon Beast is one of my favorite movies in this genre this imaginary genre i have called the furniture movie oh interesting <laughs> <laughs> it's movies that i that i like because i i love the furniture and oh awesome uh, track of the movies <laughs> is is one of those movies that's awesome ega is is another one if you've ever seen <laughs> yes. Ega, oh yeah yeah <laughs> um that's a furniture movie 
everything in it is just gorgeous. Oh yeah, and it's it's funny uh, on a total a bit of a tangent here. Um, have you watched any of the Conjuring films? I think I saw the first one. Okay, but yeah, I, I'm not really all that interested in them. Well, it just has to relate. It relates to furniture, and I think it's in the Conjuring too. We have the two main characters back from the first one because then there were a bunch of ones in between that were like prequels or whatever. But anyways, the two main characters are in their house in the 70s and that whole interior is so 70s and so beautiful you know i said to my wife i'm like when we get a house someday that's what our interior is going to look like (laughs) we're just going to have it remodeled yes i can respect that that might be a reason to watch the conjuring too yeah yeah i can't think of too many other reasons to watch it you know i'm very cynical about modern films uh not that there aren't good movies still being made and i still watch movies uh, that are that are new but um you know the warrens are are in a class of their own um you know they were sort of like the televangelists of the paranormal world yeah they were like you know oh well you know you have this um you have this imaginary thing that you have going on in your house and we're going to come and tell you that this imaginary thing is real and we're going to help you solve this imaginary problem that you have <laughs> and then and then you're going to pay us for it or you're going to give us recognition for it and we're going to be recognized as experts on it and years later they'll make movies about us and may turn us into folk heroes <laughs> hey i used to read my grandmother always she always had the inquirer so I would read all about the oh, Warrens, yeah. you know, right through the 70s. And, and I'm like, oh, where are they today? Oh, they're in Connecticut now, and they're fighting a demon. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I, they were involved in the, the Amityville horror, weren't they? They investigated the Amityville house, I believe, yeah, after the Lutzes left. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like that. Like, you can't tell anyone that the Amityville horror isn't real, even though the people that perpetrated it have admitted that it wasn't real. At least they recanted it once they realized that nobody wanted to hear that it wasn't real. Yeah. And that it was sort of like a gold mine for them now. <laughs> I don't think they fully understood the potential for the Amityville Horror story. But of course, that was created by the Lutzes and their lawyer because they were underwater in their mortgage. And, you know, they, they didn't know how they were going to pay for this house that they couldn't afford. And the lawyer was like, well, we'll have somebody write a book about the, how the house is haunted. And they came up with all that stuff that was in Jay Anson's book. Yeah. But, you know, it took on such a life of its own that now you can't talk people out of it. Now they're like, oh, no, it's real. Right, right. Because I went in that house and I felt those vibrations. And everything. I'm like, how could you how could you possibly have investigated this when the people who told this story in the first place admitted that they made it right. up? So <laughs> that's what's fascinating about the Warrens. Well, yeah. And it's funny, just about Amityville, I wanted to mention I. When I was a kid, my, I think it was in 1983, my parents and I went to to Long Island, um, and one of the things we were going to do was find the Amityville house, and so we did. Mm-hmm. We couldn't get down the actual street it was on because it was some kind of block party, so we went across the river, and we saw it, and we took pictures of it, and my mother still has the pictures, and the, the funny thing about it, because at the time, we still really believed it was haunted, when you look at the photograph, the house itself is out of focus, but all the houses on either side of it are clearly in focus. And the boathouse is gray, but it gives off a white reflection in the water. And, it, you know, say what you want about it. I, I just, you know, I always thought that was really odd and couldn't really explain why. I mean, you could 
chalk it up to their you know shitty film cameras from the 80s but <laughs> the owners probably were using some kind of technology to do that because that was one of the worst things about that house after the story came out anybody who owned it would leave not because it was haunted but because they couldn't stand all those gawkers that would come and take pictures <laughs> and park in front of their house and there were people walking onto their property to go take pictures in front of the amityville house and it, it infuriated the people that owned it that's funny. um but i have visited it i i mean i just i drove down the street and i parked in front of it and looked for a little bit i tried not to be too intrusive uh they changed it uh, they changed a lot of it in fact those uh creepy windows that are in the that what we perceived to be the front of the house is actually the back of the house that faces the river right the, the thing with the weird windows that look like eyes yes yeah that faced the river so you probably got a blurry picture of that yeah yeah did you exactly yeah <laughs> it's the front of the house that faces the street it just looks like any other house but whenever i see a house that has those those windows i always like i'm always like oh amityville windows <laughs> i get creeped out yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's forever ruined, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. You think that there's going to be pig eyes looking at you. <laughs> yeah, Jody, no. <laughs> Jody. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, Bill, it's been awesome having you on the show. Um, I did have one last question. Have you considered maybe someday compiling all your issues into, like, a, a large book or a trade paperback of some kind? Yeah, that has been a longstanding project of mine. Um, I, I just don't have the time to do it right now. That's the only reason I haven't done it yet right. is because I had all these other projects going on. I have the weekly show. I've been working with uh, Scream Factory and Severin Films. I've done a couple uh, ad galleries for a few of their releases, uh, video galleries of newsprint ads for the movies that, that are uh, you know, on the discs that they're creating. Uh, they did the Friday the 13th box set oh, okay. yeah. recently. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm in the bonus features. It's the very last bonus feature. At the very end of the, <laughs> the very last disc, you can go and see my handiwork. That's awesome. And um, <laughs> there is there is another release coming out this year, which I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Okay. And I'm not allowed to say what it is. But um, it's a, a film series that they're reissuing. And I did the ad galleries for this, too. It's very high profile. Ooh. That's all I'll say. Excellent. And also Severin Films has a movie coming out too that I did an ad gallery for. Um, that was the reason that they asked me was because the movie was on the cover of Drive in Asylum. Oh wow. And we did an interview with one of the actors and it's a it's a relatively obscure film from nineteen seventy nine. I don't think I'm supposed to say the title either. Okay. So I won't. But um <laughs> but that was interesting, you know, that like now other people are starting to recognize the value of having not that not that people didn't in the past. Right. You know, but now it's becoming a, a little more high profile to examine the newsprint images and to, you know, they are beautiful in certain cases, lurid in others. Uh, they're funny. They're, you know, shrewd. Yeah. <laughs> very sensational. Uh, there are a lot of things. It's fun to look at them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, can you once, once again give us your... Um... Uh, where people can find you online? Yeah, on Facebook, uh, the main page is Groovy Doom. And it's also, um, there's a page for Drive-In Asylum as well on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as Groovy Doom. It's Groovy underscore, wait, it's, I'm on Instagram and it's Groovy underscore Doom. 
on Insta. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but nothing ever happens on Twitter. I can't get arrested on Twitter. <laughs> and also I have a blog called Groovy Doom. It's at uh, groovydoom.blogspot.com. I hardly ever update it, uh, but you know, every once in a while I get the, the urge to write in depth about a film and that's where I'll post it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so and, much. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I should also say that you can purchase Drive-In Asylum on Etsy. Oh, yes. Um, our, the Etsy shop is also called Groovy Doom. Uh, I'm sure if you go on Etsy and just enter Drive-In Asylum, it'll come up. Or if you're in the New York area, you can purchase it at Forbidden Planet. There's also a place in uh, at, at the New York PA border called Phantasm Comics. Uh, they carry drive-in asylum in person as well. So th those are all places that you can go and buy it. If you're, if you happen to be listening in the UK, there's an online store called Strange Vice, and they also carry drive-in asylum. And you can order it directly from them, and then you don't have to pay high shipping costs from the US to the UK. That's great. That's great. And do you offer subscriptions or no? Just buy them direct. It's just on a, an issue by issue basis right now. Okay. Um, I, I consider doing subscriptions, but I, I think for my own sanity, uh, <laughs> you know, just individual purchases is the way I have to go for now. Right, right. Well, they're so awesome. I love it. Thank you so much again for coming back on for coming on the show. And um, you know, if you want, yeah. I'd love to have you on again in the future. You can talk movies with us, talk about you know your upcoming releases and more of what's going on with Driving Asylum. I would love to come back and talk to you. It's been a great time, and thank you for asking me. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Well, we hope you enjoyed my interview with Bill Van Rin. Please check out his Drive-In Asylum fanzine as well as his Groovy Doom Facebook page. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.